From Wakefield, it's the Nolan Car Night Show, inviting you to join Nolan as guest this week, Joe C. Peskin, to the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here's Nolan. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of the show. Hopefully you've enjoyed what you've tuned into. And via the phone himself, coming from California, joining this week as a very special guest. Not only is he the man of reeds, a Brooklyn boy born and bred, and the Sultan of Sax and many other instruments, but he's also a very kind man, as well as one of the most, two of the distinguished musicians helping keep the legacy of authentic and old mouthpieces around. He's the man himself, the Joel Peskin. I want to sort of start like this, and seeing as seeing as though you are a, a person of the music world, a musician, a businessman in the music world, you you sort of had this double viewpoint of the last three years of craziness that have sort of um had a chokehold on the music world at this point three years later what's it like sort of seeing the music world sort of go back to what it used to be not just from your own perspective but uh, as a whole and all these good musicians fantastic ones and you know the whole market is just uh it's just internet driven you know social social networking sure and you know getting getting views and followers to push products. Sure. From a business perspective, though, with, with um, your, your business that you're running with the um, read pieces and ma- other mouthpieces of that nature. Extension of what I did, actually, because I was once very poor. And back in the Beach Boy days, I, and, and in high school, I used to go to pawn shops. When I, I went to the high school of performing arts, the fame school in Manhattan. And it was just music, dance, and drama. And I met some fantastic musicians. You had to be really a great player to audition and to get into the school. It was a very tiny school. And sell a few things here and there to pay some bills for its music teacher. When I went on the road with the Beach Boys, I'd always go to pawn shops. And to, and to sales when we were playing out in the country, you know, going on a car caravan sure. or whatever. So I had a good business sense that I was kind of, kind of a music store myself. And there was a newspaper here in California called the Recycler. And you can find, you know, it's like in the music section, flutes and saxes and clarinets. So I was always horse trading, as they call it. Made a lot of extra money doing that. And then that took me all the way up to when eBay started. I was making very good money touring. I toured with Barbra Streisand, and I was doing hundreds of movies and records. And just, you know, one of the lucky guys to be in the studio click here in California. And then I started to buy and sell on eBay and hit it and sold stuff for people that were retiring, bought stuff. And did manage to get a big collection of instruments and mouthpieces, and then it was getting hard to find product. So basically, we, uh, I started this business by getting copies of vintage mouthpieces that are made on a CNC machine, a computer, and there's an engineer that copies these old mouthpieces, kind of even the one that I played on Kokomo. Sure. The mouthpiece. Uh, we redesigned for Eric Marienthal, but I launched the original Beechler Bellite when in 1980 for this 
company Beachless Saxophone Mouthpieces, and then I played the original Entertainment Tonight theme on that. That kind of launched my <laughs> career, you know, the da 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 Yeah. Yeah. That was like the, 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 the epitome of my style and sound, even though it was short and sweet. And basically, I just took that. I always had that business side. My cousin was a big-time business guy with Christ Waterhouse, and he was an accountant, had a, had a CPA firm in Beverly Hills. He, he actually was a financial manager of War, Three Dog Night, Quincy okay. Jones, all of these people. And he came from Brooklyn where I'm from, and on that side of the family, we were just good with numbers. Yeah. So that's an advantage. Even when I was with the Beach Boys, I was the contractor of the horn section. All right. you know, they would pay me, and then I would just take a little blood money out of that <laughs> and pay the doctors, and it was, it was a lot of fun. So that's kind of how far back the selling aspect came, and it was always good to have when work was slow. Sure, yeah. The pandemic, when no one was working at all. Yeah. Like, it was uh, kind of by design. Sure, yeah. You, know, you can't go to the store. <laughs> yeah. So that's, not, so that's when I kind of went in high gear. Sure. To do something else. Not, not to, you know, to make money... We all want to make money, but just to have another thing, a passion project. I like to have passionate pro projects that I get involved with because it keeps me busy, you know? Sure. You, you, talked, you, you talked about growing up in, in Brooklyn a little bit, and, you know, obviously music has been part of your life since, you know, as, as far back as at least nine years old. For you, though, at, at that young age, elementary school, middle school, how much did you have thoughts of music, not just recreationally or as an extracurricular activity, but possibly doing it post-high school and after that? Vincenthurst, the, the elementary school, and I signed up for trumpet, and they were full up, and he said, well, you have to play clarinet. So my mom took me to the Vincent School of Music, which was in the same neighborhood, and we rented a clarinet. And the teacher didn't want me to have the mouthpiece for the week that I had to wait to start lessons. Because he didn't want me to start playing it the wrong way, you know, when you sure. play it on a clarinet. And then I got the mouthpiece, and I have to say, every time I took a lesson, I was very talented because I was a slacker. <laughs> I wouldn't practice, but I would be, I'd be kind of a badass. Sure. I practice enough, and then he... I would always get a 90 or a 95 in my grade. And when you did good, he gave away these little clarinet pins okay. that you could wear on your shirt, you know, with a little, you know, like people wear a flag. Sure. And then it was just in my blood. In the sixth grade, I played a Benny Goodman uh, song, Escalita, for the, for the auditorium for a class music show. And then when I went into junior high, I got in band. And then I had this great music teacher, Joseph Fitzgerald, who was a teacher in, at PS 128. And he was like kind of a really hip guy, and we bonded. So I studied with him, and then I was in the band and had to play a solo, and I didn't know what to do. Because, <laughs> you know, the band was playing, 
and whatever it was, if it was a swing chart, and and then I he said just make up something. So I did that, and then I was also working in the Casco Mountains because my family and their friends, all the kids played instruments, accordion, trumpet, sax, drums. So there were a lot of kids involved with music in Brooklyn and all the different areas, and I got in a band and played. I used to play clarinet duets with my friend. He'd play accordion, and I'd play clarinet. You know, we, we would play corny sure. tunes from the fake book. <laughs> and that's it. I was just always playing. You know, I was kind of like a, a pet monkey. That sure. <laughs> but that's some tips. <laughs> then I got to junior high, did all of that, and would play for dances. And then I remember that all the bands had guitars, and they drowned me out. <laughs> I kind of learned how to play loud and hate guitar players. Sure. On a jump, whether it was a wedding or a dance at the uh, community center, all the guitars did was turn up their knob, and you'd be there without a mic, <laughs> and no one could hear you. Yeah. So that was good, and then I auditioned for performing arts. Big long list. It's still there. It's not open as a school. It's kind of a historical. All right. Building on forty-six West Forty-sixth Street, Sixth Avenue, and so I was in the music district every day. I would take a train from Brooklyn to high school performing arts, and Manny's was there. Sam Ash. It was the, that's where that's where all the casts were in New York. Sure. Sixth Street. 48th Street was where Manny's was, until I uh, played in all of these bands, and the Beach Boys were coming to town on their way to Europe, and they hooked up with a guy named George Andrews, who was an arranger, and he had a lot of records with Bob Crew. This is, I didn't even know who they were, but I played in George Andrews' big band, and I got called with four other guys to be the horn section in that 1968 tour with the Beach Boys. It was 10 days on the East sure. Coast. Okay. The Beach Boys being sort of, you know, the rock and roll band that they are, you know, although you've played probably other genres as well, why is jazz the one that's sort of stood the test of time and still with you every time? I had a, I had a lot of records, Riverside, Cannonball, Adelaide. I was obsessed with all of that. And Swing... And not, not swing music. I love Benny Goodman. And my dad always played musicals on the Victrola and would sing in our apartment. And uh, so basically, I still played rock and roll a little bit when I had to play with uh, one of my best friends. He's a professor at some big university. But he was pretty wealthy and had a big house in Brooklyn. And he played guitar. And he was obsessed with Grant Green. Right. He had no record, and he bought a Hammond organ. So he was obsessed with Jimmy Smith, Babyface, Willette, all of these Blue Note records. And we would play, and we went to see Jimmy Smith at uh, Madison Square Garden. I was 16. I remember my friend stole his parents' car, and he and another guy and him drove all the way to Newport, Rhode Island, to go to the Newport Jazz Festival. All right. We were just 16. Wow. Kind of ran away from home, but there weren't there weren't as many axe murderers. Sure. <laughs> there was no MS-13 covering, so 
So basically, that's where I was drawn to straight up jazz and even kind of avant-garde jazz, which is kind of beyond, you know, people who go, what are, what are they doing? What's all that noise? But I like rock and roll, too. Sure. It's a good rock and roller. He's... So those two kind of elements were a good mix to have in my in the pot, you know what I mean? Sure, and by the time when you joined the Beach Boys, I sort of were straying away from the, the surf stuff, which I sort of want to talk about. You, you you played after, you know, you went to the School of Performing Arts and you're studying with all these other people and you're going through your, your lean years. Did you ever, or could you ever think of or predict playing with someone like the Beach Boys at, at that time? Just a Jewish <laughs> saxophone player from Bensonhurst and I knew all these Sonny Rollins and all of these big-time people were playing, and even Michael Brecker sure, yeah. when he came into town, and all of these monster players. I studied with Joe Allard, who taught Eddie Daniels and all the best people. He was like the top teacher, sure. dean of Juilliard School of Music. I didn't even get into Juilliard or Manhattan. So I went right from, right from the gutter, to the Beach Boy tour, <laughs> and I met these other horn guys, and that's when I met Mike Kowalski. Yeah. So that was like a big, a big hookup in my life is meeting him and Ed Carter. Sure. And you were with him for a while afterwards as well. That's when you did some other recordings. It was called a new nadir. Yeah. Mike's wife was British, so he he was already over there, and then when they came back, they kind of had an open checkbook with this producer Joe Boyd to do a record except there was no real band sure it was more of a band on paper that was the downside you, you know you have to have a band that even to play in a garage for a few <laughs> years to, to be like a band when you start playing at the beach was in 68 as as i said they, their image had completely changed they they were having a hard time getting a lot of people to come to their shows were you a fan of that music that music before you I joined them you loved the rolling stones uh, satisfaction, hey, you get off of my cloud. I loved the Beatles, had every record, and I hated the Beach Boys. Uh, I, I may have mentioned this earlier when we talked a while, a few weeks ago, that you were one of the first guys to play with the group, along with, of course, Mike and Ed Carter and some other folks as well. What does that mean to you looking back at, regardless of how long your experience was with them, that you sort of set the tone for how to play with the Beach Boys and how, help to make sure that their music is played the correct way? You play the same notes on every song that there were horns because you know there wasn't there wasn't horns on every song sure. that's what you did it was just automatic you're a side man you know even when we did the central park concert yeah which is on youtube i, I have a i have a close-up playing the flute yeah that one i'm with dennis <laughs> a backstory to that an incredible one and I had all that long hair, sure. and, uh, hippie shirt. I was a hippie, <laughs> certified hippie, but I wasn't a barefoot hippie. Oh, there we go. The chart, and then I would do a solo. They would feature me, and you can actually hear my solo on the closing of the Fillmore East. Okay. Right, cell block number nine. Sure. Gold Tuscan from New York City. <laughs> I remember we did that at Carnegie Hall okay. in like 70 or 71. And my parents, who lived in Queens, New York, they came to the show. And then he would drown me out on the therapy. <laughs> and I used to get pissed off. 
Joel Peskin from New York City. So I would come out and I would just play a hard nose shuffle. You you mentioned Mike and Ed, and we've talked about them for a little bit, which we'll mention again at some point. How early on, because you talked about how you went over to England and you did stuff with them there. They wanted to do this record and they wanted to have like a Latin band. Sure. Santana. Okay. So basically, I came out to L.A. and Mike put me up at his house in Hollywood. And his pa his parents, his father was a director and worked on Around the World in 90, 80 okay. days. And his whole family was in the movie business. His brother directed Beretta. And his other brother was a script supervisor on, on uh, you know, Al, the, the gangster show, The Untouchables. Okay. And Mike played with the guys from Redbone. So I met a real West Coast guy, and we were hippies. <laughs> you know, we had that in common. Just a cheech and chomp. You know, smoke it up, play a shuffle. So it turned out while we were trying to get this Latin band together with some other guys on the East Coast, th this is clutch right here because Albert Collins, you know who he was? The name sounds familiar. Texas. Albert Collins was one of the greatest guitar players, but kind of underrated. Oh, right. And Albert needed a band. Oh, right. So me and Mike and Mike's friend auditioned for Albert. i never forget it. We went to this big house. They were putting him up at this manager's house in Pasadena. And we auditioned. We just played a shuffle, and he hired us. Oh, wow. So right in the middle of supposedly getting a Latin band together, we got a gig with Albert Collins because this guy played the meanest shuffles. You could you could look up his single called Frosty. All right. The title it had was based around ice. <laughs> you know, ice and cold and freezing. Oh. So that and we played for a year with Albert up and down the West Coast. We played blues festivals, Mandrake, and we had we had the most killer bands. You know, and then I, you know, I remember me and Mike bought leather pants and a fringe, and we were all getting decked out. And we would ride around an Albert station wagon and go on the road. And the bass player was Mike's friend, who wasn't even a bass player, but he was good enough that Mike can show him how to walk. Sure. On a, he was good until he turned the time around. So that was it. We did it for a year. And then what happened is. The British people said, well, you need to come here and do the record. So we kind of, in the middle of everything, picked up, and I went to, to flew to New York, and we got this Jerry Gonzalez, who died a couple of years ago, who was very famous. He played with Eddie Palmieri and Ray Barreto and Ford Apache and his friend to fly to England to go to Mike's wife's farm I guess they were pretty wealthy and owned a beautiful farm out in Chillum near Canterbury. So now we're taking all of these young kids. And I remember we were in London and I, I was scared. <laughs> you know, what? If, I'm only like 20. What am I doing in London? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it turned out, unfortunately, the, the Timbali player, one of the percussion guys was a Vietnam vet. And he was a heroin addict. Yeah. Now, who knew? So he was out getting drugs. And I remember me and Jerry 
campus. We went to different high schools under the same name, took that train ride out of, we were, we were tripping, <laughs> you know, like this is, where's the train going? It's like, we're nowhere near anything I ever saw, sure. you know, being in the country of England. And that was it. We started to rehearse and these Puerto Ricans hated Mike and Ed. Oh, wow. There was no chemistry at all. So they, so they quit. So they, I think they try to finish this record. The record was never released. I don't even have it. And I remember me and Mike wrote this one song. We used to jam in his house. He would play a drum that he had, like an Indian drum. And I would play the flute. And we had a name for that. So him and me, him and me could really get it on playing wise. Sure. And that was it. I flew back to New York after that, after that whole thing blew up. Met my future wife at a hospital because she was my mother's nurse's aide. Okay. And flew back to California. And what did I do? I called Albert Collins and apologized for quitting the band from a phone booth, from the payphone. <laughs> and Albert says, you know what, Joe? I'll call you back in 15 minutes. So he was mad. Never heard from him again. He got a different band. And then I think in 69 or whatever, I got back with the Beach Boys. and had a couple of years left. In that. Right. Besides playing with the Beach Boys at, at, at afterwards, I should say, after your time with the Beach Boys ended, you recorded a, a few albums or you were on, at least I should say, some of the recordings of two albums. with Another um, musician that I like being Frank Zappa. Compared to Zappa, what was, I mean, compared to the Beach Boys, what was it like working with Frank? I did a lot of records with Mike, his own records. Sure. He never wanted, I, I never had interaction with Brian. Okay. Yeah, when they recorded in Bellagio, when I first came to California, I had went to the, you know, Bellagio, the house in yeah. Beverly Hills. Yeah, sure. So in Bel Air, and that's when they did that documentary, and they're in the pool. And yeah. And the back. I knocked on the door and I had my tenor sax in a gig bag, you know, like a leather bag over my shoulder. And Brian answered all unshaven, unkempt with a robe on and thought I was a telephone repairman. And he was like in a panic. He says, just go in the back, go in the back. So then there was the same thing. They always had somebody around that wrote music, you know, for the musicians because you had to. And then with Zappa, my friend Sal Marquez, had gotten in the band, and this English bass player, Alex Domchowski, he was like kind of a rock star from England, and Zappa was doing Waka Jawaka. Okay. Got on the section, and all of that, all of those horn parts uh, were recorded in the bathroom of Paramount Recording. Really? Okay. Park. Yeah, up, upstairs <laughs> uh, in, in the early, in the mid 70s, because Sal was a brilliant musician. He could write. He went to Berkeley, played with Buddy Rich when he was like 18. So he would write the hardest stuff, you know. He could transcribe Zappa's guitar solos. Really? And you know how that was like, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh <laughs> yeah. It's just like backwards stuff. Sure. So, a couple of trumpets, and we did that. And the bathroom was a plush bathroom, you know, it was all tile. It was big, and I remember while we were recording, Zappa's leg was broken. Oh, wow. And he added in a cast and Moog. Robert Moog was already up there hawking his wares. Oh. 
from the Moog synthesizer. I have a picture wearing a Moog T-shirt. I'll, <laughs> I'll text it to you. Yeah. It's a classic with long hair holding my kid. And that's that record. Then when he did Hot Raps, that was way more elaborate. Right. You know, had all of these hotshot musicians. And I was never a fan of him and his music. And he, his manager was a thief. They were <laughs> low life. They never paid anybody. You had to take them to the union and really... They didn't want to pay anybody. You bring all your instruments down there because he was unique and he just, you know, the sky's falling. He can put anything he wants. Eventually he had a studio in his house. And then when you would add up all the money, you could have been making a thousand, two or three thousand dollars for being the leader of the session, for making up parts, to bring all your horns, and then you'd have to go get the union girl to write a contract and then chase him down for months <laughs> to get the money. Was there a silver lining to this? manager, her tone, was a notorious thief. After playing with Alba Collins or the Beach Boys, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't really melodic. Sure. You know, and, and people could think he's a genius or whatever, but if I never heard him, it wouldn't have mattered to me. After all of that, I just started to lean more, more towards studio work. Sure. Because I was good at playing different instruments, so I kind of, and I had a kid, and I just, you know, you just follow the brick road. Well, that's why I sort of want to talk about the studio work where you really, you know, became um, notorious for. I mean, obviously the t film stuff you did, the TV work. So basically, I hooked up with one to the next, and, and I was really good. Right. I had a good tone, and I had kind of a Michael Brecker hip kind of edge sound. Even on Carl's record, you ever hear the stuff I did on Carl's record up in Caribou? Oh yeah, um, yeah, his his self-titled and then Youngblood. So that, that kind of stuff. Oh. Right. Uh, I was up there for three days, and I have a nice. He has this one ballad that he's doing, but the initial thing is when I got called to do the original Entertainment Tonight thing, I had just switched to this certain type of mouthpiece that this guy made in my neck of the woods, Beachler. And Arnold and, uh, and and Mr. Beechler, I can't think of his first name. He was around for 50 years. He was an old timer, and he made this metal type of mouthpiece. And I went to the factory, which is in Northridge, only 20 minutes from where I live, in Chatsworth, in 1980, if you can believe it. <laughs> I can't even believe that's 40 40 years ago. And I was pretty young then, and I went and picked up this mouthpiece. And he wanted me to uh, be the spokesman for the mouthpiece. And uh, I remember doing the NAM show, and he did a billboard with my picture playing oh, wow. the mouthpiece. And when I did the original Entertainment Tonight theme, that sound, everybody copied it. It was, one of, it was actually a giant revelation in sound, and everybody bought that mouthpiece. Sure. That, that launched my career. Sure. That, I just that sound. That's the sound I had on Kokomo because it wasn't just that mouthpiece. It was me getting on that mouthpiece and the mouthpiece you had, a, it would be like having a gas pedal on a Ferrari. Sure. It wasn't easy to push up and down. Yeah. You had to have some chops, as they say. And somehow in my head, you know, music is like a, is, a, is an art form and it's spiritual for me, you know, not just, it's spiritual where guys try different mouthpieces and guitar players play different guitars and strings, but it's something in my head that I was going for sure. about God, you know, that I was trying to connect with some higher power 
in, in, in the sound because the sound is what you always remember, you know. Sure. Their sound will live on. Even if they don't have a good sound, it's still a sound. Sure. So, you know, good or bad. And that was it. The phone was ringing. I did every <laughs> TV film, Knots Landing, and even up to the uh, Beach Boys when they called me and had a basic track. Because I had been going up to Terry Melcher's okay. all the time to do demos and work for him. And then Bruce said, Peskin, we're, we're going to be down in Santa Monica. Can you come and blow a solo? So he was with Terry and Mike Love. And Mike wrote this song, Kokomo, for the, to get it in the movie, Cocktail. Yeah. So I went down to Third Street Recorders and banged it out. I did one run through. And it was it's kind of a derivative of Baker Street. Because right. back then, every all the saxophone players... All the, a lot of the producers wanted you to play like that sax on Baker Street because it sounded like, you know, the curtain's coming and the guy is jumping out of the fire with the horn. Okay. You know, it was very sexy. Sure. So I did that one take, and, that, and then it got in the movies, and luckily it was on a union contract because it had it been on a, Frank, on a Frank Zappa record, I never would have made another penny. Sure. So I've made thousands of dollars on that <laughs> song over years because they would play it on TV yeah. or do it on John Stamos, you know, uh, and uh, it, they re they re-ran that on the movie, on the record, soundtrack, you know, it, it, it has, they have that, that's the difference is they're trying to change all of that with streaming right now, so yeah. I hear, so they don't have to pay back in, they want to just own everything. It's yeah. kind of a globalist dream of ruining people's happiness. And then, uh, I did American Idol, and then I did Dancing with the Stars, Academy Awards, and M a lot of Emmys. I did the Golden Globes for 25 years. Every year, same thing. You go in and out. The bands usually weren't on TV. And then Dancing with the Stars was pretty much the biggest, the last big gig that paid royalties for reuse of all the shows. It was fun. The band was great. And then they got rid of me, and then they got rid of the band. And they just made a change, you know, for younger players. And then after that, I kind of, that was it. I had, because because when you do a dedicated show like that, it takes you out of circulating on other gigs. And things were changing. Other yeah. guys were doing the work. And then that's when I kind of wanted to go back into the into the business side. Because I, I accrued, because I was making such good money. Not millions, of course. But hundreds of thousands of dollars, and I would buy and sell horns and keep all the good ones. All right. So I had like a massive collection <laughs> of mouthpieces. My house is like a museum. There we go. Serious. That's why I'm Irene now. Yeah. Now, <laughs> with a lawyer, luckily we found a good attorney because we with the, the internet sales are really slow. Because we're kind of, we're in a depression right now, and you know there's not many bands touring, and a lot of people are getting sick from COVID. So I'm just saying that uh, the website business is down because I'm the webmaster. I do the art for the real artists. I just come up with rough stuff, and I'm running the business with the mouthpieces, the caps, the ligatures, the supply, the label. It's a full, you know, in my house. Sure. So, you know, my house is like everywhere you walk, there's mouthpieces. <laughs> it's not sloppy. It's actually decorated 
and I live kind of in a uh, secluded, I'm on a, near almost a, an acre, and now we've been getting a lot of big orders from Korea. We got a big order from Makwa Music, and that picked up the slack, but we're not used to selling uh, 50 mouthpieces with kind of like a little niche. We could do 50 a month, you know, with onesies and twosies, but these guys want 10 of this, 15 oh, wow. of that, 10 of that. So we have to tell them a month, and this has become a challenge. Then we're making a saxophone due to a guy that knew somebody with a big Chinese saxophone company that makes horns for a lot of different people. So we wanted to copy the horn like what I played with the Beach Boys of Mark VI. So we made a copy of that with the factory over two years with the guy that manages the saxophone company all during the pandemic. So it was amazing how I could submerge myself luckily into a project and live kind of secluded. And the whole COVID thing uh, didn't really uh, hurt my family. And, and another thing is that I want to run my own company because I'm an artist and I want to make a mark for doing something that I want to do. Sure. So all doing music, I still always had my little, even me and Mike, you know, we got a deal on A&M Records, you know, with the Baxters. I don't know if you're hip to that sure. whole little side thing. And that went nowhere. And Herb Alpert loved the way I played, signed us, gave us $100,000. You know, 75 grand to do a video, uh, an album, an EP, and 25,000 for a video. And it got in light rotation on MTV yeah. in the day, and then it pooped out. And then I went back into the studio, and then Mike was working with the Beach Boys. You yeah. know? So we kind of had alternate. So right now, the company is my pride and joy, and I still play at home, but not as much. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you that about the MTV thing because that, you know, probably early on into that and you got some exposure with that. To go from playing across the, the world, whether it be with the Beach Boys or whever, maybe working with Frank and then now yeah. going back with Mike Kowalski again to get on MTV, what was that like to find that success at, at that point in your career? Mike always wanted me to play kind of dirty. Okay. Mike was a good blues drummer. So we came up with this thing after we played with Albert Collins we played with Suge Otis. You know who Suge Otis is? No. He, he wrote that hit, Strawberry Letter. Okay. So Suge Otis was Johnny Otis's son. Okay. Smoked hand drive. That was a big hit back in the day. So, uh, so what happened was, is we came up with this name, The Baxters. Okay. Because it was like, get on your back. Okay. Saxophone players, the old black guys, they would get on their back when they would play. But because I was from New York and I went to the High School of Performing Arts, I told Mike, I'm not getting on my back. <laughs> but I am getting on my back playing. Okay. In other words, visually, sure. it's going to sound like I'm on the floor. Because okay. I'm going to be playing so hard, I'm practically going to be throwing up. Sure. The groove is that heavy. So we did a demo. Okay. So we did a three-song demo, and I was always the driver, but me and Mike, because he had that motion picture thing, we were both kind of, uh, he was part Jewish, Mexican, Polish, dad drank a lot. They had this big house on Taft Avenue, and, uh, you know, they they, 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 they were well off. Yeah. Like, uh, Catholic school, he went to Hollywood High and all of that, and... Um, 
So we had this demo, and I was doing a gig with Bobby Finley, and Bobby Finley's Chuck Finley's brother, who's a trumpet player, and it turns out that Bobby was one of the, he was in the Tijuana Brass, okay. you know, with Herb Alpert. So on a break, I said, hey, Bobby, you think you can get this to Herb? So Bobby listened to the, the set. I still, I still have cassettes, okay. a lot of them, and I have a cassette converter, but I haven't, I haven't taken it out of the box because I also have the whole Ewe's thing. Sure. That I see that was another. So I should have been put away a long time ago. <laughs> let's put it that way. It reminds me of the guy that was uh, in uh, Graham, Graham Stoker's Dracula, Tom Waits. You know. <laughs> When he was in the Nut House, you ever see that movie? No, I haven't. Sam Stoker's Dracula. It's one of the great with Gary Oldham. It's one of the greatest movies. It's, okay. it's very trippy. So uh, the characters are. So it turns out that he says, "Oh, Herb loves this shit." He said Herb used to follow around Big J McNeely. So he takes the cassette, and I'm living in Canoga Park now. Uh, the last house I had about 1984 and I had an answering service because that's what you needed. You know what I mean? You can't, I didn't, I, I didn't, I didn't, I liked having a service sure. as opposed to an answering machine because I was getting 20, 30 sessions a month. Even the caribou stuff was in right. time period. So I didn't answer the phone and the service picked it up and about a half an hour I called the service and I said, do I have any messages? And they said, yes, Herb Alpert just called. I said, Herb Alpert <laughs> called? No way. She said, yes, they want you to call A&M Records. Oh, wow. It's 5 o'clock. I call up, hello, this is A&M Records. We're closed right now. I, it blew my mind that I had to wait the whole night, <laughs> the whole night till the next day. So I call up A&M Records. You know, now it's not there anymore pretty yeah. much. It's uh, Henson Studios, and they if you haven't been out here, and it's a, it's a recording. You know, the studios where George Harrison recorded oh, yeah. when it was A&M. You know, it was heard that was his, where he built that label, and that A&M logo is still on La Brea off, off Sunset. So, you know, those are the landmarks when the hippies were around, when, when you know, the world was a better place. So... I call, and Cheryl, his secretary, says, Herb Alpha's office, me and Mike would always laugh, because she would go, Herb Alpha's office? <laughs> you know, all posh. So it was like, unfortunately, Herb didn't ever acknowledge Mike, because Mike was just playing backbeats and stuff, right. and he was driving me, but Herb, he thought I was like the token. Oh, wow. Thing. And we drove, me and Mike drove down there, all nervous. We drove everywhere, man. We were like brothers. <laughs> we kind of had a falling out. And we haven't talked much for years, five years or more. And it turns out that we went down there and he said he really loved our stuff. And he was, uh, he said, do you have an attorney? And we were trying to shop this all over the place. And I said, yeah, Fred Ansis, who managed Black Sabbath and these other rock bands. He was <laughs> just an attorney for a lot of big people. So we made that record deal and got a budget to PO. And we kind of did... Uh, it was a little bit like the, uh, what's the English group that did, uh, you know, with John Bonham, you know, they did. Uh, oh, um, not Led Zeppelin. Zeppelin did that on a blues thing, like the Stray Cats. They had oh, right. 
So we were kind of going into that niche. Right. We had some very high-end experimental stuff. Right. And some, you know, we use electronics and electronic drums. And the record was really innovative. Sure. And A&M Records hated us. All right. It was anything that Herb would sign, they would kill. Sure. Because the label, they ran the label. He owned the label. So he would have, like, you know, his own artist, Gato Barberi, this guy, and they had Janet Jackson. So you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So the record bombed. We spent about five grand picking up radio stations and trying to get promotion. And then we sold. That was it. It just pooped out. I still have the original records. Me and my, you know, did you ever see what the record looks like where he, I'm jumping in the air and he's looking at me with the drums? I saw the YouTube video, but I haven't seen a, a photo of it. All right. Send it to you. Sure. It was, All right. Anyway, that, that's it. So that's it in a nutshell. Bye. <laughs> can't think of anything else to say if I didn't uh, unturn anything you wanted to know. Well, I, my dear sir, good friend, I, I want to say thank you for taking the time to doing this. When this comes out, I'll, I'll make sure to send you a link and make sure to do all that, that fun yeah. jazz as well. Well, all those out there, if you enjoyed it, because who the heck wouldn't, um, subscribe, like, comment, share all that fun jazz so you can stay up to date with future episodes. And in the words of Johnny Carson, I bid you all a heartfelt good night. Take care and we'll chat soon.